Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, like Andy said, if you are new or visiting, uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Andy was saying as well, small groups is the, the best way to do that, just to get to know people's lives and, and get in to build relationships. And so we'd love to invite you to check out a small group if you're new, uh, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. So excited as well to continue our series this summer. We're working through a a study is we're taking a look at the attributes of God. And what we've talked about is that an attribute refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone. And what we see in scripture is that God's attributes, they define and describe who he is. In other words, they, they tell us who he is and what he's like. And I think it can be easy to think about studying the kind of the theology of God as like something that's kind of heady intellectual exercise that's good for pastors and professors, but not for regular people. And I hope that throughout our series this summer, and again this morning, what you're going to see is that is the intensely practical reality that uh, that it is to think rightly about who God is and what he is like. Because what we've seen since the beginning is that the truth is, is that what we believe, it always determines what we do. What you believe always determines what you do. Your behaviors, they're the tangible expressions of your beliefs. And so what you believe about God changes what you do in very real and practical ways. And, and that means that when our actions and our attitudes and our perspectives are out of line with God's word and his will in our lives, then on some level, fundamentally, that's because we either don't know, we've forgotten, or because we're refusing to believe something that's true about God. So as we think about who God has made and created us to be and what it looks like to live as his people, the question is always, it has to begin with beholding and believing in who he says he is. And that's especially true of the attribute we're going to look at this morning, which is God's holiness. I don't know about you, but as a parent, what you find is that you end up repeating the things to your kids that, they, that are really important that you want them to remember, or, or the, things that that are, uh, the things that they forget most often. Uh, for example, please and thank you. I think I'm on reminder like six and a half billion with my children about saying please is the beginning of something you're asking for, right? You see, the same is true in the Bible, and when it comes to God, the thing that you find the Bible repeats and reiterates, the thing that you, want, you see that the Bible wants to make sure that we do not miss about God is that he is holy. The word holy, it appears in the Bible 700 times in the verb form, which is the word sanctify, another 200 times. It's attached to God's name directly more than any other attribute. And what I want to show you this morning as we study what God's word has to say about what it means that he is holy, what I want to show you this morning is that the reason why there's such a heavy emphasis on God's holiness is because it's not just an aspect of God's character. God's holiness is who he is at the very core. All of his other attributes, they flow out of this one. They're imbued with and, and defined by God's holiness. Which means that it's only when we behold and believe in the holiness of God that we'll see him rightly, see him for who he really is, but also that we'll see ourselves rightly. We'll see ourselves for who we really are and who God's also calling us and making us to be. And so with all that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive into our study this morning. We've got a lot to get to, and I pray that and trust that it'll be good for your hearts. And so let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word and for our time together. We are grateful to gather this Sunday morning to, to worship you. And we pray that as we study your word, you might be gracious to keep showing yourself to us more clearly. 
God, we need uh, to see you rightly for who you really are, because it's only when we see you rightly that we'll see ourselves rightly. And so, God, we need you to do that in us this morning. God, I don't have any power to cause the truth of your word to be seen as true and to be good news that, that shapes us, but you do. And so, God, I ask by your spirit that you would help us to see not only the reality of your holiness, but the reality of our need for it in our lives. And so, uh, change us by your word. Give us soft hearts that are moldable and teachable because of you. And God, we just need you for all that. And so we pray that you do it for our good, but ultimately so that you'd get all the glory as we live lives that show and reveal your holiness and your glory. And so we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said in the beginning, the Bible more than anything else wants us to know that God is holy. And so the question is, is what does that mean? What, what does the word holy mean? Well, the, the Hebrew word that's translated in our Bibles as holy, it comes from, comes from the root word, which means to cut or to separate. And so when we're talking about holiness, what we're, what we're really talking about is the idea of separateness. It's the idea of, of being set apart. And so the question is, is simply this, is that you got to ask is, when it comes to holiness, what sets God apart? What makes him different? What sets him apart? And the, and the list is really endless, but, but in Scripture what you see these, these two main categories in which the Bible talks about the holiness of God. And, and the first is that it talks about God's holiness, his set-apartness in regards to his moral character and purity. In Revelation chapter 15, uh, verses 3 and 4, there's these seven angelic beings uh, singing songs of praise to God, and, and their song says this, they say, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord. Just and true are all of your ways. You're the king of the nations, for who will not fear or revere you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says it this way, your eyes are too pure, they're too holy to look on evil. They say you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And Job 34 verse 12 says that it's unthinkable that God would do wrong. That the Almighty would pervert justice. In John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he says it this way, For this is the message we've heard about him, about God, and we declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You see, when the first thing that the Bible wants us to see about God's holiness is, is to say, when we say that God is holy, is to say that he is completely and utterly without moral blemish or sin. He always does what is right and good and just. In fact, he cannot do any wrong, let alone tolerate in his presence. And he is not just absolutely good. He is the very source and standard of goodness in and of itself. And you see, and we see in Scripture that God's utter purity and his character is what distinguishes him from all these other false gods. In Exodus chapter 15, uh, Miriam, she sings this song about God. She says, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is likely you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? When you look at the stories of the gods of ancient Egypt and Canaan and Greece and Rome, they read more like a reality TV show than they do sacred scriptures. 
And yet in contrast, the God of the Bible is characterized by a moral purity that is so blinding that even the sinless angelic beings, the seraphim, that that stand in his throne room, they cover themselves with their wings as they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And their threefold repetition in Isaiah's vision of God's holiness in his throne room, it's a really big deal. You see, in Hebrew, one of the main ways that you get across emphasis and importance and, and gravity and magnitude is by repeating words. Rabbis would often repeat themselves uh, twofold, and uh, Jesus would do the same. You see it often where Jesus says to those who are listening, he says, truly, truly. He's saying, uh, this is really, really true. I want you to get it. And yet when you look at Scripture, what you see is that there is only one attribute about God that is ever repeated three times like that. There's only one thing that is repeated with that kind of emphasis, one thing given so much focus, and it's God's holiness. And so what those angels are really singing and proclaiming about God is that he is holy to the nth degree. His purity exceeds the limits of any scale or imagination. They're saying, God, you are infinitely good. God, you are absolutely just. God, you are incalculably pure, immeasurably righteous. There is no hint of darkness in him at all. So the first aspects of God's holiness is his his moral purity. And that's honestly usually where we stop when we're thinking about God's holiness. But the Bible doesn't just talk about God's holiness in reference to his set-apart moral character, but also to his utter transcendence. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, it says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides him. In Isaiah chapter 40, God says of himself, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Be holy one. Psalm 96 verse 9 instructs us that we might worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, that we might tremble before him all of the earth. See, what happens is we tend to define holiness by looking at other people the actions of others. And when we do that, what happens is we always will get a diminished or skewed view of what it means to really be holy. Because the Bible says not only that God is the standard for holiness, but that he is distinctly and infinitely set apart from everyone and everything. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he puts it this way. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best that we know infinitely bettered. He says, we know nothing like his divine holiness. It stands apart and unique. It's unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. He does not conform to a standard. He is himself that standard. You see, and so it's not just God's moral character that sets him apart, but that he himself is set apart. He's transcendent. He's in a whole other category. God is unmatched, unequaled, unrivaled. There's no one at his level. There is no one like him. He's altogether different than, unlike, set apart from. I think Tim Keller, he really helpfully sums up these two aspects of God's holiness, his transcendence and his moral character and purity this way. He says it this way. He says, the holiness of God is his incomparable and transcendent perfection by which he tolerates no rivals and allows no impurities. Let me say that again. God's holiness is his incomparable and transcendent perfection 
by which he tolerates no rivals and allows no impurities. That's a big vision for what it means for God to be holy. And when you and I, when we behold and believe in a God who is characterized by that kind of holiness, it changes us, it impacts us in some really significantly profound ways. And the first is that it confronts us. God's holiness confronts us because it reveals the reality of our own sin and our own depravity. God's holiness is so bright, it's so brilliant that anyone, anything that's compared with it is instantly and automatically they recognize how unlike him they really are. The prophet Isaiah, in, in his response to just getting a glimpse of God's holiness, is filled with this deep conviction. In chapter 6, verse 5, he, he writes this, he says, Woe to me, for I am ruined. That language is the language of being cursed, condemned. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, in view of God's utter holiness, Isaiah becomes profoundly aware of his lack of holiness. Even his lips, the very thing as a prophet he would have used to speak on behalf of God, he identifies not as a strength, but as a weakness, something that's been defiled by sin itself. He's, he's realizing that even in speaking for God, he's done it with wrong motivations and an impure heart and with blindness to his own rebellion. And it's only in seeing the holiness of God that Isaiah sees the truth about himself. He sees the reality of his own sin and depravity. He's utterly ruined. And that's true for all of us. You see, the reality is that we live in a world that's surrounded by sin and unholiness. It's not just around us, it is in us. And so we become desensitized to unholiness in our lives. And we've learned to live with it and to view it as kind of the natural and expected thing, like a, like a high schooler. I don't know if you remember years ago, Febreze, they made these commercials where the whole, the, the catchphrase was that this idea of becoming nose blind to something, right? And so there's this like high schooler sitting in his room and he thinks it's great, but it like flashes to what his mom sees and it's like the nasty locker room where you can see the green fumes coming off stuff, you know? He's totally unaware. He thinks it's great, right? That's like us. We can't smell the stink of our unholiness until we see God's transcendent purity. Dane Orland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, he writes it this way. He says, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. We can only see with deeper clarity just how insidious and pervasive and revolting sin is as we see the beauty and holiness of God. See, God's holiness, it reveals the reality of who he is and who we are. And it's only when you see him that you see yourselves rightly. See, the reality is that we try to compare ourselves to other people. And that's not the right comparison. We're all a mess, every single one of us, sinful and unholy to the core. We are not good people who do bad things. We are sinners and rebels who are justly deserving of God's wrath. What you need to see here, this is just an aside, but the reality is, is that if you have never felt the weight of your own sin, then you absolutely have never seen the Holy King and you don't know him because you cannot see him you cannot encounter his utter purity and not see yourself as impure. 
So beholding and believing in God's holiness, it, first it confronts us by revealing the depths of our sin and our depravity, but it doesn't just confront us. You see, God's holiness is actually meant as a comfort to us. See, you and I, we are sinners. We're surrounded by people who, as sinners themselves, have a tendency to sin against us. And what happens oftentimes is that we project the, the capacity for sinfulness that people have towards us back onto God. And so when he commands us to do things, we don't think he is safe enough to obey, and so we don't do it. But the reality of God's holiness by definition means that he is pure and good to the very core. He cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, then he cannot sin against you. He cannot do wrong to you. Therefore, he is the most safe and trustworthy being in all of the universe. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God often roots the reason why he's worthy of our faith and our allegiance in the reality of his moral character and purity. We can find no faults with him, so we can trust him. Jackie Hill Perry, she puts it this way, I think so helpfully. She says, when you don't really latch on to the fact that God is sinless, you tend to treat him as if he has the potential to sin against you. But when you really grasp the fact that God is holy so that all he is is good, therefore all he does is good, therefore all he commands is good, it gives you the motivation you need to actually trust him. And out of trust flows obedience. See, God's holiness is meant to be a comfort to us. He is good to the core. And so he will always be good to you. And you can count on that reality because it's who he is. And it's out of a confidence in his holiness that leads us to obedience. And that's actually the third th way that beholding and believing in God's holiness impacts our lives. It, it convicts us, it, com it comforts us, but also it calls us to be holy as he is holy. Leviticus chapter 11, in the midst of God's people, he tells them, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I am holy. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this way. He says, dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. He says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. See, the message throughout Scripture is that, is that as God's image-bearing representatives, we're called to reflect His holiness, His separateness, His set-apartness. And when you look at the ways that God's Word calls us to holiness, you see that it involves both being set apart from something and set apart for something. Our own holiness, it looks like being set apart from something and set apart for something. First, it's about being set apart from the world. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says it this way, As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes about this. He says, it's God's will that you might be sanctified, that you might be set apart as holy. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
You see, in every age, in every culture, at every time, the calling of the people of God has been to live lives that are set apart from the world. God's ways are not the ways of the world. And we're called as people to live and to act and to think differently than the world around us when it comes to sex and money and power, when it comes to priorities and prerogatives, when it comes to even our very motivations. We're to reflect the moral character and purity of God whose image we were created to bear. He is the standard, not the world around us. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, God's holiness means that all of the created order functions within a fixed moral order wherein good and evil are never simply relative terms contingent on culture's moral taste buds. Instead, human flourishing is always a function of delighting in that which God delights and desires. You see, for God's people, we're called to not set our own standards for holiness, but to look to him as the one who is the standard and sets it for us. See, we're called to live lives that are set apart from the world because they reflect the holiness of God. Unfortunately, and this is just a side note here, but unfortunately, I think over the centuries, many Christians have mistakenly understood God's call to holiness as a call to live detached from the world. And that's, you know that that's not right because that's not the way Jesus and his own apostles lived. Jesus prayed specifically in John 17 that, that his people would follow him, that they would live as people who are in the world but not of it. And so to live as God's holy people is not to live lives that are detached from the world, but to live lives in the midst of it that reflect the holiness of God. And so being holy, it involves being set apart from the world, but also it's about being set apart for something. When you read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, what you see is that it's not just God and people that are set apart as holy, it's pots and vessels and utensils and clothing and plots of land, which is confusing to think about because how, how can any of those things be morally pure? Right? They, they can't. You can't have like a morally, objectively morally pure pot. Right? That's, not how, that's not how that worked, right? They can't, but they, they can be set apart. You see, the opposite of holy isn't sinful. It's common. See, there's, there's holy use and there's common use. I don't know about you. In a, I grew up in a house where there was two sets of dishes. You know, there's one set that you used every night for dinner, and you stuck those babies in the dishwasher, and you hit the power mode, and you got those suckers clean, Right? And you use those every night and every day for whatever it was, right? But there was another set of dishes that resided in a special area of the, the, the dining room, right? Inside a hutch, if you will, right? You know? And there's glass case on it, right? And there's filigree on all the plates and everything looks kind of fancy and no one knows where it came from, but it's important, right? <laughs> and you don't put that stuff in the dishwasher, right? You wash that stuff by hand, and you only use it for special occasions and for special people when they come over. You see, you see it's those, those dishes, right? They're set apart in a sense they are holy. You see the same kind of thing all over the Old Testament. They had sandals for normal use and sandals for use in the temple. They had pots that were used for normal to mix their bread for dinner and, and utensils and pots that were used in service of God. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes it this way. He says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, holy purposes, right? Some are for common use. Those who 
cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. You see, the, the point is not just about being, that holiness is about being set apart from something, but it's about being set apart for something, for a purpose It's about being exclusively dedicated, committed to something. And for God's people, holiness doesn't look just look like being set apart from the world. It looks like being set apart for the purposes and the glory of God. So often we miss that. We think that holiness is just about not doing the wrong things. But holiness is just as much about being set apart for giving our lives wholeheartedly to doing what is right. You see, a lot, of, a lot of times the way that people view God and their faith, right, is that he's just a part of their lives. He's, he's a part that exists for a couple hours on Sunday or when you need something from him, like when a crisis or an emergency hits. And, but the reality is that the God of the universe is not someone you fit into a compartment in your own life. He's someone who's, who your life fits into his He doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us. You cannot say to the God of the universe, God, you get this part of me, but not the other. You can have some, but not all. See, God wants us to be set apart exclusively, wholeheartedly for him, so that all that we think and do is ultimately for him like an Olympic athlete whose every ounce and fiber, every inch of their being is given towards the goal of winning the prize. God says he wants us to be his people who are single-mindedly devoted to him, who are wholly set apart for him, who are set apart from the world and for him. The problem, though, is that instead of beholding and believing in the holiness of God and setting ourselves apart from the world for his purposes, we try to actually usurp God's authority as king, and we stage a coup by which we kind of enthrone ourselves as little g-gods, right? We try to redefine what is right and true and good. We try to become God ourselves, and we do that because all of us know deep down that when we compare ourselves to him, we don't measure up. And all of us have the clarity of that sense that we, that we don't measure up to God's standards. And so what we do is that we, whatever we do, we, we try to get out from under the weight of our unholiness. We try to escape the burden of that weight. And we do it by normalizing and trying, normalizing the sin in our lives so that we can excuse it. Or we minimize God's holiness in an effort to minimize our our own unholiness. Or we shift the blame onto others or society in general. But none of that works because God has wired you in such a way that you are his image bearer. At the very core of who you are, you have been made and designed to reflect and embody the very nature and character of God. That's true of every human everywhere. And so when we live out of line with God's purposes for us, he convicts us. And we try to escape it, and we try to numb it, and we try to run from it. But the reality is is that God's holiness is unchanging, and it is unblinking. And we stand before him as unholy. 
And so the question is, is how do we move from unbelief and rebellion to belief and becoming when it comes to reflecting the holiness of God? How do we go from unbelief to belief? How do you do that? Well, like Isaiah, you have to encounter not just the holiness of God, but you have to encounter his transforming mercy. You see, in that quintessential passage on holiness in, in Isaiah, where he sees the holiness of God in his throne room, it doesn't end with Isaiah just with this deep sense of conviction and guilt. In, instead, it ends with cleansing. Verse 6 goes on after Isaiah proclaims his, his uncleanness and, and, his, and his desperateness. It goes on in verse 6. He says this, Then one of the seraphim, one of those angelic beings who had been singing out about the holiness of God, says he flew to me with a live coal in his hands which he had taken with tongs from the altar with it he touched my mouth and he said see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away your sins atone for just moments before isaiah was convinced that he was going to die rightly justly under the wrath of god and yet, instead of the storm of God's judgments coming against Isaiah's sin, what you see is what flows from the throne of God is grace and mercy. The angel comes with this burning coal from the altar. A coal was what was left over after a sacrifice had been made. It was the results of a sacrifice and the results of which have removed Isaiah's guilt. They have atoned for his sin. They've covered it, paid for it. Not just vaguely the sins of everyone. No, this is personal. You see, the very thing that Isaiah has confessed, his unclean lips, is the very thing that is atoned for. What makes this even more stunning is that God initiates this mercy on Isaiah's behalf before he even asks for it. What we see in John chapter 12 is that the holy king that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, the holy king who cleansed his sin and atoned for it, John chapter 12 verse 41 says that that was a vision of Jesus himself, that Isaiah saw him which means that God does the same for you and I. Paul, the writer of Romans, he says it this way in Romans 5. He says, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is to say that before you even knew your unholiness, before you even knew how much you needed a rescue, before you even knew how much you were unworthy and how desperately you were in need, God came to be your rescuer and he did all that was at work to secure your atonement and to make you right before for him, clean, pure, set apart, holy, so you could be in his presence. And the truth is, you cannot miss this church. The degree to which that reality sinks into your heart will be the degree to which you actually have the motivation and power to pursue holiness in your life. I'll say that again. The degree to which the reality of God's unmerited grace and mercy for you, the degree to which that sinks into your heart, that will be the degree to which you are motivated and empowered to pursue holiness in your life. See, the power to pursue holiness does not come from just knowing you don't measure up. 
It comes from knowing that even though you didn't measure up, God sent himself to make you holy. You can never be holy on your own, and so he came so that you could be. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says it this way. Paul writes, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He doesn't say, because you know how much you don't measure up, obey. He doesn't say, because you are so unlike God, work really, really, really hard so that you can be like him. That's not what he says. He says, in view of God's mercy, because you do not measure up, and yet God has come in mercy for you to make you right with him. Give yourselves back to him. See, the message of the gospel is that God was wholly committed to you. And when you see his commitment to you, that's the thing that fuels your commitment to him. Nothing else can do that. Everything else just leads to guilt and shame. It leads to this inadequacy. But when the gospel is good news to your heart, it empowers you to pursue holiness with everything you have. You see, your positional holiness, the fact that God sees you and has made you holy because of faith in Jesus, that's the thing that empowers your practical holiness. And when you see that God's made you holy and he view you as, views you as holy, what happens is that instead of giving you wrath, that, he, that he's shown you mercy, then that fuels your longing to be set apart for, from the world and for him. And when you see that instead of his holiness being a reason for fear, it's a reason for worship. And when you see that instead of driving you away from him, his holiness is actually captivating to you. Those are the things that fuel your obedience to him. You see, and that's a part of what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves about the mercy of God. And it's mercy that we desperately needed because we are altogether unholy in the face of an utterly holy God. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith in the person and the work of Jesus on your behalf is the one thing that changes your status and standing with him. And so instead, communion is a chance to, for us to remember, to remember that the Holy One has atoned for your sin, that he has sacrificed his very self so that you might be made holy and blameless in his sight, that, so that you might be motivated and empowered to pursue a practical holiness in your lives as worship unto him. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, or if you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship at the end, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice. You can go whenever you see fit. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, then I want you to know how welcome you are here in this church, how welcome you are in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold on off on taking communion. God is not after empty religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that is exclusively and wholly devoted to him. Not to get something from him, but because you've been given something you could never earn or merit. 
So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at, talk with God this morning. How does beholding and believing in His holiness need to change you? See, for some of you, believing and beholding in the holiness of God, it needs to convict you of sin in your lives. You've been playing this game where you just keep comparing yourselves to other people and you think, well, I'm not as bad as X, Y, or Z. I'm a little bit better than whoever it is. And so you've minimized the reality and the gravity of your sin because you're comparing yourselves to people. And God says that we're not to compare ourselves to people, but to him. And it's only when you compare yourselves to him that you see that you are in utter failure. And the best you have to offer is but worthless rags before him. Some of you, God's holiness needs to convict you of your sin. But for others of you, it needs to comfort you. You are here this morning and you sense that God is calling you, inviting you into a life of obedience to him, and that feels very costly for you. It feels costly because what it means in part you are sensing is that it means he's calling you to set yourself apart from the world. And that is difficult and hard. Read the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter to a people of God that are trying to live apart from their world. It sucked. It brought about difficulty in their lives and it was difficult and hard and yet it is always worth it. And you can be confident that because God is holy, therefore infinitely pure and good, what you can be confident of is that any obedience he calls you to is for your good. You can be confident that he cannot sin against you. He cannot call you to do something, even if it hurts, that will destroy you, that will be for your bad. It will always be for your good. And some of you need to be comforted by that reminder this morning, and you need to let it empower you to walk in obedience to him, even if it's costly. And for others of you this morning, the holiness of God is calling you, it needs to call you to a wholehearted devotion. Some of you are here this morning and you've been trying to live this life of faith, giving God pieces at a time. God, you can have this part of me, but you can't have the rest. God, you can, have, you can have my money, but you can't have my sex life. God, you can have my career, but you can't have my kids. God, you can have my, you can have my time on Sundays, but you cannot have it during the week. Some of that is still mine. See, and that is an utter rejection of the holiness of God and the holiness he calls us to. You see, obedience to him is an all or nothing endeavor. And God is gracious to work in our lives, to bring about obedience in us over time. But he calls us to write him a blank check and to give over everything to him. No asterisks, no bars hold. God, you get all of me. You get to be king of everything. And some of you are here this morning and you've been playing this game where God, you think you can give him part of you. You can't. And I want to urge you, God is endlessly, ultimately, utterly holy, and he is utterly good. And although it feels scary to give him everything, you can trust 
that giving him your whole self is the safest place to be. And so I want to call you to that because God's word calls you to it. That we might as a church be a people who are holy, not out of duty and obligation, but out of joy because we're responding to the mercy of God. The unmerited, undeserved, unasked mercy that he shows us. And so I want to encourage you. Come to him. Rejoice as you take communion. Submit, surrender to him for the first time, some of you. As we do, let's pray. God, we are so grateful that when we come to you this morning on this side of the cross, God, we can come to your holiness. We can view it for what it really is. And instead of it producing in us a fear, it produces a joy in us. And we're grateful, God, that that you save us not just from our sins so that we can stand in your presence, but you save us so that your holiness is beautiful and captivating and compelling for us. And so, God, we're grateful that Jesus, that he was wholly committed to us, that he gave himself wholeheartedly for our good. And we pray, God, that you might help us to give ourselves back to you wholeheartedly as you did for us. Help us be a church that is holy, set apart from the world and for you exclusively. God, cause us to reflect the image of your son, Jesus, who shows us perfectly what it looks like to live a holy life. Thank you that your grace and your mercy is what makes all of it possible. We love you because you first loved and forgave us. Enable us to live holy lives for you. Amen.